This is Chapter 16 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. With the unofficial start to summer just a couple of weeks away, we're going to kick off our annual Summer Beach Read series this week. I spoke with author Laura McBride about her novel that follows the lives of four women who are connected through a Vegas nightclub. And a little later, Paul Murnane gets the scoop from a former FBI agent who uncovered the biggest espionage breach in U.S. history. Round Midnight by Laura McBride spans six decades and weaves together the lives of four different women living in Las Vegas. What connects them, we soon learn, is a casino nightclub known as the Midnight Room. Laura recently spoke to me from her Vegas home. So I didn't start out thinking about, oh, I'm writing a book about four women. And these four women are very different from each other. They have very different backgrounds. One's Hispanic, one's Jewish, one's black, one's Filipino. And I always say I certainly didn't intend to write a gap ad of diversity. I started with one woman, and I was in, um, I went to a nightclub act in Las Vegas. This is a very Las Vegas experience. I wasn't very happy about going to it because it was in a really down-and-out casino and a terrible nightclub, and it kind of smelled and was smoky, and I just wasn't eager to go to this show. And it was some doo-wop performers who were not young, and a couple of guys from the Platters and the lead singer from the Coasters. But the show itself was magical. They were wonderful performers. They could sing and they could dance and they knew what they were doing. And it was a sort of transporting experience. And I had the thought, the nightclub was 50 years old. It was about to be imploded. And I had the thought, I wonder who else has been in this nightclub in the last 50 years. And right away, the first character in the novel, June Stein, popped into my mind. And I was actually working on another novel, and it it just caught my attention so totally that I just, in in that split second, abandoned that other novel and said, I'm going to write about June Stein. And I knew what the story was, the arc of June's story. I thought that was going to be the whole book. Um, But pretty early in the writing, I was going to take June Stein for 50 years. Pretty early in the writing, I thought, oh, what if June ever met Honorata? who's the Filipino mail-order bride in the, in the story, and a character I had imagined for many, many years and had not written about. And then shortly after that, I thought, and if June could meet an honorata in her life, could she bump into Ingracia, who was a character from the novel that I had abandoned? And um, so what happened is I had a story in mind about one person, and the other characters worked their way in as people who moved into that character's life. And so when it's all done, the novel's about four women. But in my original conception, it was about one. And the one character you didn't mention there was Coral, who happens to have a really deep connection to June. She does. Um, so Coral, I didn't realize she was going to work her way into the story. Once I, once I had June and Honorata and Ingracia... I thought I had a story about three women and three time periods in history, um, the 1950s, the 1980s, and contemporary times. But Coral just worked her way in, and I say that Coral exists in the novel because I set June Stein in motion, and Coral came to exist because of the story. I think it's really very interesting in the way you introduce each of these women, the the way you set up your chapters. And each woman gets a line that's dedicated to kind of what describes them. But when you read the whole book, you kind of realize that those lines can describe 
the other women in the book. Oh, thank you for seeing that. So I had three characters and three lines. And in my mind, they all did that. They all reflected on all three. And I, this is amazing that you asked that question. Nobody has said that. But that's exactly how I was thinking of those lines. That when you were done, you would see that, that they applied to all three. But then when I added Coral in, I had to come up with a fourth line. And it was a little bit trickier. So I've thought that people don't see it because it doesn't work as perfectly. I mean, Coral's a wonderful character. She she is necessary to the novel, but she did mess up my little, you know, perfect <laughs> three thing. So besides the connection to the El Capitan Casino and its nightclub, the women also share this common bond of being a mother and motherhood, the joys and the pains of it. It also seems to be a very integral part of this story. Oh, thank you for that, too. So initially, when I, at the point where I realized I was really writing about four women, I had the idea, I don't want all four to be mothers. Lots of people I know are not mothers, and I just didn't like the idea that I made every woman character a mother. Um, so initially, I didn't want Coral to be a mother, and I didn't have her be a mother, and I gave her a different storyline. And then I couldn't work her back into my plot. I always knew the end of my novel, and I couldn't work her back in. I had trouble just making that happen in a natural way. And I was, in the way that writers do, or at least I do, I was working that plot problem. How am I going to solve that? How am I going to solve that? And one day, it just, not not that this was maybe the only solution, but I realized, oh, if she meets someone late in life and she ends up with a couple of little kids, she's just going to naturally root back in. And she did. And then I said, darn, I have four mothers. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so, so I also did not intend for it necessarily to be a book about mothering. What I wanted it to be a book about is people's deeply felt experiences. And I wanted the reader to have access to these women's innermost lives in a way that was still plot-driven and exciting and made you want to turn the pages. But if, I guess I am a mother and I have been mothered, and if you're going into a person's inner life and they love a child, then that's going to be there. So while it wasn't my intention and it certainly wasn't a theme I had, it just is part of somebody's innermost, deepest emotional life if they are actively mothering and engaged and in love with a child. So that's how that happened. And and, and like I said, it, it's really one of the, the strongest emotions that come across the book. It's really this this love for a child and also, you know, love the, the love that a child has for a mother really pulls everyone Thank together. You. Yeah, I, I think that that's just, that just grew out of trying to get to the heart of these characters and maybe a way that I um, see um, see people and see our emotional lives. And obviously there are situations in which that's not the, the mother-child relationship, but it was for these women. Yeah, and as we mentioned, the story is set in Vegas, and not only do we get to see these women transform over six decades, but we get to see that city itself go through changes. Yes. Um, so it's interesting to, I write about Las Vegas in part because I've lived there a long time, but, um, I'm fully capable of imagining a different setting. 
I also write about Las Vegas because I think it's a very interesting place. It's a boom town. It's changed very rapidly over a short period of time. Millions of people have come from all over the world into a city that did not have an existing infrastructure, which is quite unique. There wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a neighborhood where certain people from a certain place went. And so I find it a very fascinating, dynamic, vibrant community, certainly not a utopia, but just ripe for stories. Um, And then in this particular novel, I was setting it over a 50, 60 year period. And I was really careful about the three periods of, of time I chose in Las Vegas history. So the novel opens in the 50s. And at that time, Las Vegas was one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. Um, The casinos were making big money off black musicians and black entertainers, but black people were not allowed to gamble in those casinos or eat in the restaurants or attend those shows or uh, sleep in those beds. And not even the black entertainers who were performing and making that money were allowed to gamble or eat or sleep in those hotels. And there's a whole history, you know, really a terrible history of racism there in the fifties. And from there, I moved to the late eighties, early nineties, which is a transitional moment for Las Vegas history. It's about 10 years into the um, boom that turns Las Vegas into a metropolis. And it's right when the Las Vegas casinos are starting to be companies traded on the stock exchange. And it's the end of the period in which being a local is something really special on the strip. Um, And I moved to Las Vegas in that time. I remember that transitional period well. And then I moved the story to contemporary Las Vegas, which is a big, vibrant, diverse city. And it's a it's a big city with a little city past and a purple state that's not easily summarized. And um, that is the history of Las Vegas. And in my mind, it's a kind of microcosmic history of the United States. You know, Las Vegans are people who left established places and fo- and tried to forge a new world on their own, very much mirroring our own United States history. And all of that plays in my mind when I'm working in that setting and with people who might live in that setting. And you have that that line that Coral says that people are always shocked when she says she's a a native to Las Vegas. Yes. A lot of people come from somewhere else. Everybody comes from somewhere else. I mean, when I moved there 30 years ago, I think we were at about 300,000 people, which is not which was really big compared to what it was 40 years ago. Um, But now it's about 2 million people, and those aren't the same 2 million people because people are always moving in and out. And the the collection of people who are born and raised who are older than 20 is really quite small. And they're pretty loyal to each other. To be a born and raised in Las Vegas is is kind of special status. (laughs) So what do you want readers to take away from your book? Um, The first thing that I want a reader to take away is pleasure. I, um, I... write to entertain a reader and for the I love to read novels I love the experience of falling in a book and caring about the characters and not wanting to leave the book at the end and that's what I'm writing for and I define pleasure not necessarily as always fun Um, I want people to I want a reader to feel some things and I want to give a reader something to relish with their mind and the most important thing that I want to give a reader is the chance to experience the world 
through someone else's eyes and um, with their past as a frame of reference. And it's, it's that kind of empathetic experience that is most uh, pleasurable and meaningful to me as a reader. It's most pleasurable to me as a writer. And I tried really hard to create that opportunity for someone else in Round Midnight. And I think you really do. You have been able to do that. I know at least for me. So thank you. Thank you. Laura McBride, author of Round Midnight, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Lisa. This is a terrific show. You can tell a whole lot about a person from their body language. And as our Paul Murnane found out when he interviewed former FBI Special Agent Joe Navarro, even the slightest movement can give away the biggest secrets. It was for Joe Navarro the way he held his cigarette. And under questioning that day back in the late 1980s, that simple thing raised flags in this individual. Navarro was sure that there was more to learn. And uh, in his new book, Three Minutes to Doomsday, this former FBI agent writes about his role in uh, the last of the big espionage cases of the Cold War era. Joe Navarro, how you doing? It's great to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're on the phone because from you, you're a renowned expert on body language, and if we were talking face-to-face, you'd probably be looking at me and my, my tics and intricacies and, uh, and quirks and probably reading me like a book. Never, he says with a wink. <laughs> Is the, I, but it must be hard to turn that off and on. I mean, do you find that when you meet yeah. someone, you kind of start looking at them and look for their body language? You know, I really, uh, you can't turn it off. And, and I'm sure you do the same thing. When you're listening to someone, you're, you're uh, listening to their voice, their quivers, their hesitations, their uh, <coughs> coughing sounds, and so forth. And, um, you know, you, you, you don't really act on those things other than when you detect there's an issue. And that's exactly what happened in this case. You know, I was listening to uh, Rod Ramsey talking, uh, the uh, antagonist in, in, in the book, and uh, when I mentioned the name, his cigarette shook, and that just didn't seem right. And the name you mentioned was Conrad. Help me out on this one. Yeah, so uh, a, a fellow by the name of Clyde Conrad, an Army soldier, had right. been arrested in Germany, and I was sent to talk to anybody that served on, on the base. So um, Rod Ramsey uh, was presumed to be just uh, another witness, uh, a soldier who had uh, served on the base. But the minute I mentioned Conrad... I mean, that cigarette in his hand shook like a, like a polygraph needle. And he did that three times, and I spaced it out. And, and I told myself, there's something to this, because normally you don't react that negatively to, uh, to, to, to a name. And, um, and that led me to request for, uh, for an investigation. Were you already uh, developing this, this body language um, skill was this something that you had picked up in your training to be an FBI agent, or was it something that kind of struck you uh, just as odd? And was it the beginning of your uh, your career in this uh, body language that's, area? That's a great question. You know, at that point, I was in my tenth year in the FBI, and uh, early on, I had discovered that you know, bureau work is all about interviewing, uh, interviewing and paperwork. And, um, and one of the things that always stood out to me was how honest body language was. Um, it's, it's so clear to see how people feel, what they fear, um, what they dread uh, from their body language, even while they're telling you everything is okay. And so I placed a lot of emphasis on body language, and certainly in this uh, spy case.
And and that you you pursued this um, for I guess for for years, right? For a couple of years, you had it because you were getting blowback or or pushback anyway from the from the higher ups. Oh, the headquarters was just unbelievable. I mean, there were. Uh, there were times when they would just shut me down uh, because they were, you know, I was, in essence, as, as, as the prosecutor told me, you're making them look bad in Washington. And, uh, and I was too young to know that's, that's, a, that's a no-no. But, you know, what delayed the investigation and, and why it took so long is, number one, we didn't know the scope of it, that in the end we would arrest four Former uh, or four soldiers in the United States for for espionage, but the second part is, and and most people don't think of this. All the evidence was overseas, and most of it in the hands of the uh, Russians, and that's what made it really difficult. And we're talking about um, NATO war plans, and this thing went so far that uh, that I'm reading that uh, Rod Ramsey actually watched them uh, with the combinations to the safes that contained the launch codes, and he, he memorized those combinations. I mean, he was, he, he's a brilliant guy, but he was a mess, too. Well, yeah. I mean, truly flawed of character, impulsive, uh, no morality whatsoever, and, uh, but very clever. Uh, had the second highest uh, IQ in, in the Army IQ test, and he was good at what we now call social engineering, talking people into allowing him to be in, in the space where he shouldn't have been. And he was able to, to, uh, to get the combinations to, to the safes where these, uh, uh, what, what's called the permissive action links uh, for the Nuclear Command and Control Authority were located. I mean, really frightening stuff how close he, he came to really giving it all away, him and, 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 the, and the con, his co-conspirators and all of this? Well, it's, it's not even a matter of how close. They gave away so many secrets that um, this showed up at two trials, the one in Germany and the one here in Tampa. And the one in Germany, the court said that basically uh, Ramsey and Conrad had left Western Europe with only two choices, total capitulation or the use of nuclear uh, minefields on their own soil to prevent the, uh, the Soviets from coming over. This was the worst espionage breach in American history, which, he, without any yeah. uh, equal. And he went to prison, uh, Rod Ramsey, the, the, the individual that you were speaking, he went to prison for he got a long, 30 years did he get? He got 30, 36 years. In fact, at his trial, the, the, the commander of, uh, of, of, of uh, European forces uh, testified via an affidavit, and he said that had hostilities broken out, the, um, the defeat of the West would have been assured. Think about that. Yeah, this was right as the as the as the Cold War was coming to its uh, to its end. Uh, if it had been a couple of years earlier and things had gone the wrong way, I mean, it's touch and go, is, is, is to say the least. Well, you're exactly right because this actually took place, you know, five to six years before the wall came down, and nobody knew the wall. As you remember, nobody knew the wall was going to come down. You know, Soviet tanks were posed. Uh, right across the border, and uh, uh, you know, it was for the for the grace of God or luck that uh, that they never decided to uh, yeah. to attack the West. 
But had they, uh, we would have been left extremely vulnerable. And the overall operation was a multi-generational thing that the, the Soviets had in kind of working the NATO and the American troops in that area, right? You're, boy, you, you, you know your history well. <laughs> uh, think about this. We had a quarter of a million men and women uh, stationed overseas to protect the uh, Western Europe and the, the the Soviets had been, you know, uh, getting their spies starting as early as in the 70s to uh, to steal our secrets. And so multi-generation, but, uh, by the time it got to Ramsey, it was already in its third generation. And Ramsey had started a fourth generation. I mean, really frightening uh stuff. You're a law enforcement guy and you're used to getting confessions and hearing them. So I'll let you know that this interview happened before I had a chance to to finish the book. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, as for Rod Ramsey, uh, he went to prison. He's been, I think he served his full term and he was eventually released. Um, have you had any contact with him and do we know what happened to him when he got out? No, I, I haven't had any contact uh, with him. You know, for years uh, he he would send me Christmas cards and and uh, and and keep me um, sort of in the in the loop as to uh, as to his life. And then I was transferred uh, uh, to to on other operations, and uh, we we lost uh, contact. I you know I, I hope he's staying out of trouble. Um, but I, it, you know, it was a, uh, it, it was a good window into this, uh, into this world where one person can, uh, have access to devastating secrets and, and when they violate that trust, um, they can, um, they can render a, a nation, uh, powerless. As a retired FBI agent now, you're this renowned expert on body language. I've seen, um, I, I think, the, one of the World Series of Poker or something. You were, I, th- I think, mm-hmm. you were involved in that, where they, you know you talk about body language, and you've really yep. uh, been able to, since your FBI days, uh, really uh, make a go in this career in body language. Is there any way of, is there any way of masking it? Is there any way of hiding it if you're in a situation? You know, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's very tough. If, if you're making just a statement, if, if you're just uh, talking, it's very uh, difficult. I think where it makes it easier for us, uh, and you know this as an interviewer, is when we get to ask questions, especially questions the person isn't ready to answer or hasn't thought about. Liars often think about uh, the answer, but they don't know about the emotion that goes with that answer. So when you ask them something like, well, how did you feel about what you saw or what you did? And, and you see them troubled by that. Um, that's often a clue that there's other issues there. Yeah, they're able to spit out the words, but they're not able to uh, put together something to cover the rest of it, the, the, the way they're standing and the way, the way they're acting. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it. So there's this uh, this dissonance between what's said and and what their body is uh, is revealing. Do, do you have to be um, in the room with the person and looking at them during the questioning, or are you able to watch like television and see a short clip of someone and pick up something over the screen? You know, you can always pick up things on, on the screen. The, the biggest complaint I get is, or I, you know, my biggest complaint is oftentimes you see investigators machine gunning questions one right after the other, not realizing that they need to create a break so that we can observe the body as it reacts over three or four seconds to 
not only the question but how it's answered. And um, so you you can tell quite a quite a bit. But but again, I prefer to be in the in the in the room. Although I've literally had subjects uh, say to me, uh, "Get that man out of here." So yeah, they're always like guys doing radio interviews. It's just one question after another that they're throwing down the line. Yeah. Uh, uh, how about um, the Trump presidency? I, 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 do you enjoy watching him? He's so animated with his hands. It's like he's brought every Manhattan conversation you've ever been in to the rest of the country with the, <laughs> with the, flying, with the flying hands and things. He does this thing where he puts the, uh, the, the three fingers uh, to his yeah. thumb and then he points the index finger in the air and the hand bounces when he's making a point, uh, you know, trying to get a point across. Yeah. You know, a lot of those behaviors you do see in, in New York because of the ethnic influences of, uh, of uh, Italians and, and, uh, and, and other people. A lot of Mediterranean countries, including southern France and, and Spain, you have that gesture, and it's called a precision grip, and that's where he brings the, the index finger to the thumb or the middle finger to the thumb, uh, making a, a sort of circle as they're emphasizing a precise point. That's why it's called a precision, a precision uh, uh, behavior. And, um, and that may have to do with, uh, you know, where he grew up and, uh, and so forth. I think what's, what, what attracts us visually is that the, the eyes cannot take our, our um, we cannot take our, um, our eyes off hands that are moving. And magicians have always taken advantage of this. And so when we see a president doing this over and over, it's, uh, it, it, our, our eyes are, um, you know, we evolve to follow the, the, the hands because only the hands can hurt you. Yeah, are you enjoying, you know, watching him when he gives these speeches? Do you spend time watching him? And kind of, I imagine you're sitting there with a little notepad and writing things down maybe. You know, when he, when he first started running, um, I, I was watching his behaviors because I really hadn't seen him very much other than um, on his TV show. Um, the biggest questions I get now, um, uh, more so um, than with, with the body language, is the, um, you know, what, what we're seeing with these allegations of, you know, why is Russia... Uh, focusing on the United States and 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 so forth, and uh, and my you know as I say in the book, the the Russians have always perceived the West uh, as a threat, and and so nothing that we're hearing now is is news to me, um, because Russia can only practice war by other means. Um, because that's the only war that they can really win. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that uh, they would, you know, be involved in disinformation campaigns. Yeah, based on your, based on your experience. And, you know, the, the Cold War has been over for 30 years, and we forget yeah. what it was like, but that doesn't just go away. Well, it doesn't. I mean, look at the players that are involved. Uh, Putin was a KGB colonel, and the KGB, you know, promoted people that were absolutely ruthless, um, and most of the people in governance uh, there now are, are somehow related to, to, the, to the former uh, services. Um, we have to remember that um, we have technology that, that, that Russia has stolen and, uh, and copied over the years, and they have always sought to use these, uh, these techniques of recruitment and influence, um, and nothing really has, has changed over time. Um, and, uh, and I've, and I've interviewed in, <laughs> enough defectors to know that, um, in their view, nothing really has changed. 
Three Minutes to Doomsday is the book from Joe Navarro. And um, in, in closing, am I hearing or have I been reading that this possibly could be on the big screen at some point? Well, then you're well informed. Uh, so George Clooney's Smokehouse Productions took a look at the manuscript be- before um, uh, even the ink was dry, and uh, they bought the rights to the book the very next day. So uh, I've been honored, um, and uh, we're, we're hoping that uh, they're, they're moving along on this, and uh, we'll, we'll, we may see it on the screen, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, part of a process. The process is beginning anyway. The story, yeah. the, I think the story would make a great film. I mean, it just really is one of those, the story draws you in. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted people to be in the interviewer's chair with me and see everything thing that I saw, smell it, feel it, sense it, and uh, and and I and I think I was true uh, true to that. Joe Navarro, thank you so much for your time. It's great to talk with you. And the book is Three Minutes to Doomsday from Joe Navarro. That wraps up this week's podcast. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.